Welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. Today we'll be talking about two movies, Dario Argento's 1977 film Suspiria and Luca Guadagnino's 2018 film Suspiria. Um, this will be a special Halloween double feature episode featuring two versions of an Italian horror classic and then what I hope will become an Italian modern horror classic, but we'll see what you guys think about the remake. But before we dive in, I wanted to share a couple of news items. First, we have two new blog posts on the website, a review of Paolo Sorrentino's Loro and a short essay on the Taviani brothers' Padre Padrone. I'm a big fan of Sorrentino's two previous films, The Great Beauty and Youth, so I was super excited to get to see his latest film in theaters here at the Lamley in Los Angeles. It was a very different take on Silvio Berlusconi than I expected, but it was very much the type of Sorrentino film I've come to love, so I'm excited to marinate more and get to revisit this one in the future. For Padre Padrone, I'm working my way through the Taviani Brothers films available now on the Criterion channel. This one and two others are being featured through the end of the month. I didn't quite love Padre Padrone, but I appreciate its unique perspective of the Sardinese experience and facing inequality on the Italian mainland. In other news, the Istituto Luce Cinecitta and Academy Museum announced a partnership as part of a five-year agreement with annual events celebrating Italian film to take place at the museum. This program will kick off with a celebration of Federico Fellini's centennial next year, which I'm hoping also coincides with the rumored box set coming from the Criterion Collection featuring Fellini's films. This is exciting not only since the Academy Museum has long been in development, but this may also be the first major international cinema partnership that the museum is undertaking. Everything we'd heard so far has been very focused on American film, so there's a lot of possibilities now that the world of international cinema will also be featured in the museum. As a brief news item, director Marco Bellocchio was spotted at the Criterion Collection offices. I'm guessing he's likely in New York in town promoting his new film, The Traitor, but I'm hopeful that this is a sign that his newest film, or maybe another, could be coming to the Criterion Collection. And lastly, I don't want to jinx it, but there might be more Suspiria-related surprises coming in the near future, so be sure to stay tuned. And now, for our main program. Excited to have two first-time guests this episode, um, Brad McDermott and Omar Negrete. Um, going in alphabetical order, Brad, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, sure. Um, I am Brad McDermott. Um, I'm from Toronto, uh, Ontario, way up here in Canada, and I um, am a filmmaker and also a artist. My name is Omar Negrete. I'm in Orange County here in Southern California. I'm actually in the legal world, but I'm a huge fan of horror movies and pretty much any type of foreign movies. I'll be there. Awesome. Excited to have you guys joining for this for your first episode. Uh, 
So today, like I mentioned, we'll be talking about both Suspirias. So maybe thinking of first talking about the original 1977 version, then the 2018 version, and then maybe we can compare and contrast uh, and build a big Venn diagram. Uh, so first, starting with the 1977 one, um, kind of to lead us in with a synopsis. An American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy gradually, gradually realizes that something very sinister is going on at the school. Uh, so what were some of your first impressions of seeing it? So I think with the original, I think it was something that the colors of the movie were just really vibrant. Uh, just looking at kind of the color scheme of it definitely gave it a look of, okay, we're not looking at a contemporary movie. But it's something that kind of gravitated towards more of whimsical, just knowing that each scene had a very distinct color. And it took away from the reality or the realism of it, but not in a bad way. Totally, yeah. It feels like you're reading, like, a watching a comic book come to life or something. Exactly. Um, Brad, what did you think of it? How do you, you first see Suspiria? Has it been on your radar a long time? Um, I first saw Suspiria when I was in college on just, like, a pretty crappy VHS tape. <laughs> and... Um, I mean, it, it was visually beautiful, but I just kind of think uh, the VHS itself um, really hurts that film because, uh, like, the film is so red, and VHS never did, like, really bright, intense reds very well, so it never did it much of a service. Uh, and um, I think that this film uh, works best as a visual phantasmagoria kind of thing and less as a plot. So it's really important when you're watching it that it looks as beautiful as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I've, I've subsequently seen it, uh, the restoration and the uh, Blu-ray that was released, I think, by last, last year. And um, it's gorgeous and I love it. Um, are you going to upgrade to the 4K, keep plussing your versions of it? Um, I don't have 4K stuff yet, uh, and I, don't, I think it might be a while before I actually cross that threshold, uh, so we'll see. For sure. Uh, I, I haven't crossed the 4K threshold either, but I know it's coming out. Um, for me, I think I first heard of Suspiria... Actually, I think similar to Black Sunday, the previous episode, um, I first heard of it from one of those countdown shows. I think it was like a hundred scariest movie moments countdown on Bravo. And they featured the um, really intense opening scene um, with Patricia being pursued and then her grisly demise. Um, and the commentators on the show were saying, what a great example of Italian horror it is being super stylized very visually beautiful but also like incredibly demented and violent um and just from all those descriptors i knew this was a movie that i had to see uh, so i think i first saw it on in college um, i didn't quite love it but i appreciated it but then it quickly became a halloween staple and now it's become one of those movies you gotta i have to watch every year um omar you had kind of touched on the colors earlier um I think there's a lot of there's a lot of meat to dig into with this movie. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about kind of the cinematography choices and how color pops. Yes, so definitely in the movie itself, uh, you know the colors they just pop 
each different scene. It almost seems like each scene has its own color palette in the sense that this entire scene will be red, this entire scene will be blue. And I think that really kind of makes you focus not so much on what you see on the screen, but the general theme of what they're trying to like pass along the mood of the scene. It's definitely something that and we'll get to the second movie later on, but I see a really big difference in kind of what the mood is being set determines a lot by the color of it. Absolutely. Like one thing I noticed this most recent round was how, I mean, this is very effective, but the colors really felt most intense when witchy stuff was going on, of course. But it, you know, it's such a, it's a, such a visually striking distinction when you go from the blues and greens of Sarah leading herself to her demise, going down the hallway, falling into barbed wire until a witchy person comes and gets her. And then you jump to just regular daytime outside when Susie's going to speak with the professor or doctor. It's like such a visual indicator of this is something fantastical, hyper real going on versus the more muted colors of like kind of the more realistic scenes. Um, Brad, I'm guessing as a filmmaker, <laughs> do the colors of Suspiria strike a chord with you at all? Oh yeah, I mean, I, my my kind of opinion is that the colors of a spirit Suspiria are Suspiria. The the two the the way this film looks is uh, sort of it's it's its biggest claim to I guess being a masterpiece to being um, a great film, and it's kind of it's always the film that I use as an example of how great filmmaking. Um, is kind of the only thing you need in order to make a great film. Uh, you don't necessarily need um, great a great script. You don't necessarily need the best performances. Um, they they can kind of become very much secondary. the The colors of this film make it the experience that it is and uh, heightens it to a, a, a level that. Um, other films sort of uh, strive to to get to. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like this feels like the kind of movie where every every scene is so like expertly crafted. Like nothing feels throwaway or just filler because every scene is just detailed to the max. Like one that stood out. One that stands out to me is when Susie is staying at Olga's apartment and it's like a two minute scene of like Olga on the phone right? and they're just chit-chatting but she's got this like insane wallpaper black yeah. <laughs> wallpaper <laughs> she's all dolled up it's the, the only thing that's a bummer of that scene is Susie says oh I really love my room but we don't get to see what her room looks like so maybe there's, that was left on the cutting room floor uh, <laughs> But yeah, it just feels like there's nothing, yeah, like script story aside, like just you could watch this movie on mute and be totally enthralled with what's going on visually. Yes, although I wouldn't recommend that because part of the experience of this movie is is Goblin's soundtrack. I know that we're probably skipping ahead there, but that is, uh, it is a visual and auditory 
sensation experience. It's not a film that you have to um, get invested in its nuanced characters or its you know uh, nuanced plot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The music is like definitely one of the top qualities. Did the music right. strike you too, Omar? Yes, I think I saw the movie originally probably about a year or two ago. So getting ready for the podcast seeing you recently. I forgot how often the theme music is in the movie. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's such a you know, iconic, you know, movie track to it. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that you hear and you definitely okay, it's Suspiria. <laughs> When it's, I'm not good with music genres, but it almost feels kind of like folky, psychedelic. Brad, I don't know if you've seen like Valerie and her Week of Wonders. Yes. But the score kind of reminds me of that in some ways. Yes. Like almost like fairy tale, spooky, folky nightmare is the genre. <laughs> yes, and um, it it is is that, and uh, I would I think Goblin's sort of classified as prog rock, if I remember correctly. I might have that wrong. I'm not the greatest with music genres as well. Um, but they're, uh, they use electronic uh, to mix with those folk um, hair and uh, fairy tale elements as well um, to give you something that really sounds uh, like uh, unique, different than anything else, except other, I mean, other goblin music. Uh, Argento used them um, for Deep Red, which came before Suspiria as well. Um, so to much of the same effect, they use, they sort of, if this one, if this movie uses, you know, witch chanting um, in the sort of Gregorian chanting, uh, Deep Red uses lullabies and like childhood nursery rhymes to un- unsettling effects. <laughs> Oh, that sounds really good. I haven't seen Deep Red, but oh, you yeah, haven't seen Deep Red on the audio commentary, so I definitely want to. Um, I'm just being in Toronto. Uh, one of the um, guys who makes up Goblin, I think he lives here, and he he's a prof at University of Toronto, um, and he did was it two years ago the the uh, old silent version of Dante's Inferno from the like the 19 teens they screened at the Royal and he did a live musical accompaniment and uh, he had like all these instruments and everything all set up around him and it was wild it was it was just an unreal uh, experience absolutely transporting oh wow do you know if they did they record that or is, is there a soundtrack album of that or was it like a one-time concert i don't know it might have just been the one-time concert i haven't dug that deeply into it but i should give that a google and see if it was ever recorded so but but it's great if um i think that film is on youtube because uh, i don't even know who owns the rights it's so freaking old it might be public um public domain but i don't know if that score is part of it or not though so oh sure that sounds interesting. I, I actually haven't seen any literal or like explicit film versions of or explicit is the wrong word. I haven't seen any like straight film adaptations of Dante's Inferno. Um, well, this so is sounds perfect... awesome, especially with a goblin. Yes, <laughs> the goblin soundtrack. soundtrack. I mean, this is the perfect podcast to do it. It's one of the earliest Italian films ever made. So, <laughs> nineteen oh, or something, I think. I'm not quite sure. Um, but it looks like. 
uh, I mean, this is getting away from everything, but it looks like um, Gustav Dory's uh, etchings come to life. That's sort of the, the style of the film. So it's quite something to see. Oh, that sounds terrific. I'll have to Google that. Definitely. Kind of another interesting nugget about the music um, from the audio commentary was that they had recorded the music. I don't know if it would have been in its final form, but Goblin had recorded some of the songs and they played them on set to help capture the mood, which I don't think that's commonly done, but it, I thought that was interesting because the mood, or to your point earlier, Brad, um, you know, the, video, the visuals are so essential to creating the mood for this movie that it's hard to, it's hard to think of an actor being able to read in the text kind of enough mood and feeling to to perform but i feel like the music would be so beneficial to elevate that and really heighten what is it you're supposed to be doing what's the emotion exactly. you're feeding into exactly because the yes the you're absolutely right the music um the music illustrates the feeling that you're supposed to have more than than dialogue and performances do so um i think it makes total sense that argento would do that knowing full well that he doesn't really care about the plot or its characters. Um, what he cares about is the cinematic audio and visual and visual feeling that you're, you're getting, that you're experiencing while, while watching this. Um, it was also just to add to that, as I, I know that Sergio Leone also played music on the set of his films. Um, it was, it's also just part of, Italian film history, especially at the time, that they didn't really care about recording music on uh, or recording audio on set. So uh, everything was always looped afterwards um, in multiple different languages. Um, so they didn't really care about making sure that they had captured real sound anyway. So that definitely gave them the uh, you know the ability to just air music on set, anyways. Oh, that makes sense. And yeah. you can definitely, it kind of adds to the surrealism of it, but you can definitely see the dubbing just in terms of dialogue. Like even the English speaking actors, I feel like it doesn't quite match with what their oh, ab- are doing. Absolutely. Like if you, if you look at like Visconti and the leopard, like Burt Lancaster is speaking English. Everybody else is speaking Italian. Oh, yeah. I think maybe Alain Delon is speaking French. I don't know, but like he just they just looped it and <laughs> they didn't really care. So um, as long as everybody looks like they're giving a performance, that was all the Italians really cared at the time. So <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a very specific call out, um, but something that stood out visually, not so much in the color choices, but just in kind of the framing um, for me was in this or in this scenes where Susie and Sarah are kind of or Sarah's telling Sue oh wait yeah Sarah is telling Susie like her suspicions about the witches and what she thinks the teachers are up to um whether it's in the pool or when it's almost like the slumber party night and all the students are sleeping kind of in that larger common room uh, the camera is on these like extreme close-ups where just their faces are trapped in the frame, staying still while their eyes are turning kind of wildly in all these different directions for like minutes on end. Like it's not a short shot. Um, 
and it's just like visually arresting a for the on the performance side and how kind of controlled and deliberate their their motions however subtle seem to be but then also just from the feeling of feeling confined and trapped within you know this system of oppression exploitation or whatever the witches are up to um you just really get that feeling of paranoia um and they're feeling trapped that they're going through um omar were there any visual nuggets that stood out to you um kind of from a framework perspective hmm, i have to think about that first how about you go first <laughs> um like from like mise-en-scene uh, I mean, you, the the one you mentioned after the maggots fall from the ceiling and they're all having their slumber party. Um, the the uh, the the teachers are all behind them in that screen, right? It's all red, and all you can do is see the shadows of um, of the 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 teachers, and then the 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 director, um, Mother Marcos, Helena Marcos. Um, is sleeping right beside Susie and um, Sarah, and uh, her like the 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 shadow that she casts sort of like grows in that conversation uh, as sort of like this menacing presence, and you can hear her like raspy breathing and everything over the soundtrack. Uh, so like Argento's really good at um, like suggesting. Um, just visually the the power dynamics that are going on without having to make uh, make it super clear through cheesy dialogue or anything. Oh, that's a good one. That's such a great scene to watch. I love when they're talking and you see the shadow and they're not even aware that it's there. Right. It's very right. much one of those like, look behind you. <laughs> like, yes. You to shout at the screen, but it's great to witness. And it's funny almost how quick of a switch that is because they're literally just kind of putting them to bed everyone kind of seems to be at peace and then all of a sudden the light turns on and they're literally like a few feet away from them where it's like just a harsh <laughs> contrast to what just happened a couple seconds ago it's like time for bed and then like nightmare mode <laughs> <laughs> it's like let's turn out all the lights what are these like ominous red lights everywhere oh this is nighttime. this is night mode <laughs> Argento was a visionary. He had hue lights before they were a thing. Right. <laughs> Thinking about all the hallway scenes, too, I feel like those were always from a very deep perspective. Because it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if there's any scenes where they're kind of walking along it. It's always from the center point looking far away from it. And obviously it just makes, it, makes the scenes look so much more daunting and it makes the hallway look so much more longer than it probably is. There's that one scene when Susie is first walking down that hallway, and the cook and her her son. Um, oh and, gosh! And they flash uh, something. Was it on a piece of glass or something? I cannot remember. Um, it's like yeah. she's like sharpening a knife. Yes, that's what it is. It's a reflection super on the weird. And yeah, and it's super and it's super exaggerated. And but like it's just gorgeous. Like the what he's doing with lighting in that sequence, even like. I love the dust and the light. It oh, yeah. just adds so much. Well, and speaking of the hallways, I didn't know this um, myself till watching the special features, but originally the 
what Argento wanted to do was to feature younger girls in the movie, like age 12 to 15. And then the Italian censors were like, you can't be killing children. You got to bump up the ages. Um, But to kind of keep that feeling of sort of children, um, they built the set using forced perspective, like artificially larger. And I, I wouldn't have noticed myself without being told it, but the door handles are almost at like shoulder level. Oh, wow. So in the hallways in particular, it's like they're almost reaching up to open the doors. Um, yeah, I didn't notice it myself, but like once you see it, you don't unsee it. Um, so it kind of helps create the, the feeling that they're these, I mean, whether they're young women or they're literal children, but they're the young that are trapped in this horrible situation. Um, and just adds to the feeling of this ominous authority presence looming over you. I miss the days of when 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 films did that. I mean, everything seems so so CG now, and I, you know that story is similar to Ridley Scott uh, using using um, kids uh, in Alien when they first land on the space when they first land on the planet to make the planet and the spaceship look larger than it is. Um, I just recently rewatched Brazil, and when he's when he fights the samurai warrior. They, he uses uh, Terry Gilliam uses a little kid in a in a mos- in a costume to make the samurai warrior look that much larger. I just miss when when films did that because I don't think they do those things anymore. They don't think about um, on in, in camera tricks and in camera effects. They're just sort of like all too uh, happy to jump to oh let's just make them CGI people. I don't know. It's so great. <laughs> We'll just deal with it in post-production. Right, yeah, deal with it in post, yeah. When I wonder if part of that is almost the blessing and the curse of, like, 4K or as we're getting to higher definition, because thinking of the experience of an audience member, whether they've seen Suspiria or Alien or these older titles, it would have been either in theaters or on a TV of probably questionable quality compared to what we have now, of course. Whereas now, all the picture quality is so crisp, or the industry standard of picture quality is so crystal clear. You have people watching things on their phones, literally feet from their faces. And it's like maybe people aren't as kind of open, or aren't as willing to like open their imaginations or roll with what's taking place visually before them. You know, and unfortunately people can take screenshots or pick things apart. It's almost like they don't roll with things as much as I feel like a film goer 30, True. 40 years ago maybe would have. Which is a shame. But like, but yeah, I mean, you look at practical effects and they're great. Film, like a film goer 30, 40 years ago, like if you'd saw a brand new print of Alien, Suspiria, Brazil, like you, um, that would have been even like on the big screen, like 35 millimeter is like super high quality if it's first struck. Um, so that's sort of like, oh, they're just kids. Like, if it didn't, if it didn't break the illusion back then, I have a hard time believing it would still break the illusion now. Yeah, that's true. And I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Bring that back. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Bring back like in camera, clever effects, forced perspective. You know, I think that the end of that was like Lord of the Rings, and then everyone else just went. And that was it. And because even the <laughs> Hobbit movies, everything's all CGI'd. And yeah. 
and then kind of one last or the last discussion topic I had, um, and feel free to add more if there's other stuff that comes up um, or that you want to go over. But one thing I kept thinking about, and this is sort of with Suspiria 2018 in the back of my mind, but thinking about what is the, what are the witches doing with the Dance Academy? Like you get, I understand like they're their own coven of the teachers or the matrons of the academy. But what, why do they need to put up, or I guess number one, what is the, why do they need to put up a front at all? Number two, why is that front a dance academy? Number three, what are they doing with the students? Do the students even matter? There could be there aren't answers to these questions, but I kind of want to see if anyone had thoughts on what's the so what of all the dance stuff. Um, I, I, I'll jump in. I don't think any of that matters. Uh, <laughs> to, to if that's a such a crass answer to your question. Um, the plot of this film doesn't matter. And in fact, it doesn't even make any logical sense, uh, especially when you when you come to the climax and you're looking sort of down that shaft as Susie is at the, the coven assembling. And it's just um, Madame Blanc, you know, we have to get rid of the nosy American girl. And it just sort of like unfolds as like, why did you bring me a nosy American girl? Why didn't you offer earlier in the film? You clearly can kill anybody you want. Who are these people that are killing these, these girls? Why are they killing these girls? What are they learning? How is what they're learning stopping your plan? I don't really understand the logic of any of that. And it doesn't make any sense. And the kind of thing is that it doesn't, need to because this film is not about its plot it's about its atmosphere and um if i can jump ahead a little bit to the 2018 version the problem the 2018 version has is that it doesn't rely on that and these questions do matter in that version and they're not given to you um whereas in this film these questions are not given these answers are not given to you but they don't matter does that make sense I'm going to jump in a little bit here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, like, thinking of just general, like, witchcraft lore, you know, whether it's from the witch or even going back to something, um, or just kind of, like, traditional folklore, that's always, that's what witches do. It's like they'll eat young children or they'll sacrifice young children. So just having, you know, potentially virginal youth around them at all times for whatever their purposes are, sacrifice, possession, or other witchy things. Like, that kind of fits into the mythology of witches and, like, kind of our presumptions about them and what, what they need to keep their life force going. Well, we've already... Oh, sorry, before we jump, um, is there anything else about the 77 one you want to talk about, Brad? Or... Um, no, I think, I think I've covered it. I think the, le- the length of time in this movie was because when I kind of got back to watching them both preparing for the podcast, I watched the old one or the new one first, and then the 1977 last. And it's funny because usually you'd almost think that the original would be the longer one, and this one was completely the opposite. The first one was only an hour and a half, first, the second one's closer to two hours and a half. Um, I mean, it's a good thing that. You know, they felt they had a need to go ahead and explore more of that story in the second one. But I also think, in a way, that the first one has everything 
every element that you liked in the second one, but still in a concise time frame. Yeah, it's almost like the feeling. This is a very specific example, but like with the from like 1995, there was like a five-hour version of Pride and Prejudice made for TV, and then seeing the like two-hour version with Kira Knightley like ten years later. <laughs> but it's like weird to see like the longer version of the the much longer version of the story, and then the much shorter version of the story. It's like oh, you can fit all that <laughs> in half the time. It depends, though, because, like, Pride and Prejudice is based off of a novel, so there's lo- lots more that you can pull from, whereas Suspiria is not based off of anything. So uh, it has, like, its initial 1977 version um, is, is, has as sort of much story as, as possible that can fit into its hour and a half, and then the remake has to then extrapolate more from from that in order to fill its its long running time. You can't go back to like original an original source novel to to uh, grab more stuff. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I think we can jump ahead um, kind of fully to talk about the twenty eighteen one. Um, Brad, if you'd like to read the short synopsis. Oh, okay. Um, A young ballet dancer travels to a prestigious dance academy in Berlin in 1977, only to discover it is a front for something far more sinister and supernatural amidst a series of increasingly grisly murders. Um, Brad, you mentioned Problem earlier when you were talking about this one. It sounds like you might not like this one as much as the 77. Um, n- no, I, I, I don't, I have a lot of admiration for Suspiria 2018. Um, I think there's a lot of positive, uh, elements in it. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I guess if I, I'll start positively and I'll say that, like, it feels to me that, um, Luca Guadagnino was sort of carving new territory as to what a horror film can be, um, visually and even even sort of storytelling wise um by folding all of these sort of references to its time period i mean if anything uh, i think the model he was basing this movie off was not even so much the original suspiria as much as it was zuevsky's possession which has um, a kind of similar feel to it um, but <laughs> I, I will say I have a problem with this film because there's a lot going on in it and there's a lot of it that needs to be explained that I think they think it's clever, more clever not to explain. And I'm, I'm just sort of left, um, hanging in the wind. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll go from there as I guess we delve into it, but, but Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know. Possession. Could you talk a little bit about that film? Oh sure. So um, Andrzej Zulewski was a Polish filmmaker, and uh, he emigrated to France and then back and forth. And uh, Possession is his first English language film. It's a horror 
domestic thriller starring Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill from Jurassic Park fame. Um, and it takes place in Berlin during uh, a divided Berlin. And Sam Neill is a spy that you're never really sure what his sort of mission was or is. And he's come back home to his wife, Isabella Johnny, and their son. Um, but Isabella Johnny is drifting. They're having problems in their marriage. She has this um, lover that she's been seeing, but she's also given birth to something. And it's this monster uh, that takes the form of this strange tentacle octopusy thing. Um, and she keeps bringing, it's kind of a little bit like Hellraiser, like she keeps bringing men uh, to the, the secret apartment where she's keeping this monster and the monster feeds on them. Um, but much in the same way of Suspiria, it's sowing uh, the political situation in a divided Berlin into its narrative. <laughs> so so uh, uh, the, uh, the spy stuff with Sam Neill is like just touched on, but not superly delved into. Their apartment where they live in as together as a family is just on the edge of the Berlin Wall. And there's constant shots where you actually, and because this was actually shot in divided uh, Berlin. So Zulewski constantly pans the camera over to the guards on the other side of the wall. Um, and as the film ramps up in its climax, it's kind of clear that something political is happening in, in Germany, behind, in Berlin, behind the scenes of this sort of domestic slash horror movie that's the center of this story. Um, and you're not really sure what that is, but it's kind of folded in and you're kind of left to guess how. Um, and I kind of feel that that is a, a, a very similar path to what is being attempted here in the remake of Suspiria, where um, the, the Bader-Meinhof terrorists, um, the legacy of the Holocaust, um, the d divided uh, Berlin between the, the Russian territory and the Western occupied territories, um, they're attempting to fold those political issues into this film about uh, um, like a, a matriarchal uh, ancient uh, feminine institution that practices some sort of blood ritual. Um, so that's where I see uh, the, where I see the similarities between what Zulewski's doing in Possession and what Guadagnino is doing here in the remake of Suspiria. That sounds that really interesting. Sense. Yeah, <laughs> for sharing that. I need to check that one out. Is that? I wonder if that's a Criterion channel or how that's accessible um, here in the States. I don't think it's on Criterion channel. Uh, there's a company called MondoVision that only releases Zulewski's films, and they did release a Blu-ray uh, about five or six years ago. You can still order it off of their, their website. I'm not sure about where it's able to be screened online. I just have... I have that that MondoVision version. Excuse me. Um, so that's where I saw it. Yeah, that's where I first saw it. Um, Omar, how did the political um, kind of historical context sit for you? It was definitely one of the things I had to think more so and kind of figure out what the purpose of that was later on. Especially with these scenes where you know it kind of took away from what was happening, and you know we have commentary going on with um, the Marxist extremists 
I, I kind of wasn't sure exactly where that was going for, but then going along with the themes of, you know, power and oppression and, you know, how does that compare to what's happening in the coven? Looking back at it, you know, I can kind of see what uh, the objective of what that was. But at the same time, kind of like you were saying, Brad, you know, does was that necessary or does that really connect to the story of it? Maybe that's kind of one of the weakest points that I think of the movie, but I still very much enjoy it. Um, it's for me. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just, I just would say, uh, I mean, you go ahead, Steve. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll rebuttal after you. I guess for me, and I'm not saying it's to like cop out, but I almost think of it like, um, with David, some of David Lynch's films or even like Pasolini's where even if some, a connection isn't explicitly made, I feel kind of a subliminal or kind of emotional understanding of how it fits together, which I know might sound like goofy, but it's like, even if I can't fully grasp or articulate, you know, what, what do the terror attacks have to do with these dancing witches? But it's like, I, I'm totally with it and on board with it during the movie. And I don't know if that just speaks to Guadagnino as a director or my, my willingness to just roll with it. <laughs> but it's it, like, it clicked with me, even though I couldn't tell you why. I mean, I would say, like, the thing that I like about Lynch and why his ambiguity, I think, works, whereas it doesn't work here, is that um, his ambiguity is more ambiguous. Um, it keeps it vague. And he, he keeps, um, it's storytelling like something like Mulholland Drive is int intentionally cryptic. And it's fun to piece it together, but everybody has their own interpretation of what happens in that film by design. But, to, but the problem I find here with the Suspiria, and to speaking to your point about what do the Bader-Mine have, hijackings have to do with the blood ritual, the nature of this script and the way it's written indicates that they don't have anything to do with each other. The Bader-Meinhof uh, conflict is resolved um, well before the film finishes its blood ritual. And it's never really established clearly what this whole ritual uh, is to be, it, why it's being performed, why it's necessary. And Therefore, uh, I don't really think that the film says it has anything to do with the Bader-Meinhof. If, if anything, I think the problem is, is that the film just wants to dip its toes into that political idea without um, ever, as sort of like a signpost as you go past it, right? It doesn't really, it just wants to wave at it. It doesn't really have anything to do with it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess with the thinking of the time and the place, or like the historical context, where the connection I'm sort of picking up is the idea that the witches, or the, the academy was formed, I believe, during or right after the war as kind of a means of, or the what's explained to us at least, is that it's a means of kind of banding together and um, oh gosh, what's the word? Like kind of ensuring their own agency and um, sort of 
empowerment in the face of a time of oppression um, and wartime, essentially. Um, it could be this is just a, the story that's told, or it's this is truly when this coven is forming. And that, I sort of take the latter approach because I feel like almost a, an underlying theme of the film is how how power structures form and are collapsed or overthrown and how quickly that can take place. So if the coven formed in, say, the 1930s or 1940s, and then by 1977 had formed this like oppressive authoritative control over these new dancers coming in, they're this horrible authority figure that has only been around 30 or 40 years, and then someone new can come in and overthrow it. So I kind of feel... Like that's sort of the connection I see in terms of like regimes can come in um, in a relatively short time, but the power they control can be an extreme and very oppressive one despite the short time. I don't know if I'm making sense. No, I mean I can I can see where you're you're grabbing that, um, but my my question and I mean and this is. The sort of the the frustrations with the film is like you say that, but are are you talking about the whole Mother Marcos versus Madame Blanc uh, regime change? Are you talking about um, the Nazis and the connection to the Aryan Papers? Are you talking about that regime change? Are you talking about the Russian occupied Berlin and and um, and the, the Western side and the Bader-Meinhof conflict and the Cold War. Are you talking about that regime change? Uh, I just kind of feel like the film needs to pick one. <laughs> That's fair. I think, the, I think the first time I saw it, I was really confused slash frustrated whenever the psychiatrist character showed up. Just because coming in with the familiarity of the original... Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, no, okay, yeah, there's going to be new characters. But I, I didn't understand why we were spending so much time with them. And then, you know, things clicked. And now when I rewatch it, that's almost, that's maybe one of my favorite storylines. Um, but I understand how it can feel extraneous or it kind of dilutes. Or I could see someone reading it as diluting what's going on. Definitely. You know, it's creating a lot of loose ends that you're hoping will kind of tie up at the end, but it kind of just leaves it open-minded. I don't understand how um, how it ties up. I, I, I don't understand, I, I, like, the, there's so many things I don't get. I don't understand. Um, I understand they're voting because Mother Marcos has said she is the true Mother Suspiria, and I guess Madame Blanc doesn't believe her or something like that. That's really vague. So they're voting over which one should lead this coven. And then Susie is like, I'm the real Mother Marcos, or I'm the real Mother Suspiria, and Mother Marcos is a fraud. And so then in the climax, we kill off everybody who voted for Mother Marcos as as having, under the belief that she is the true Mother Suspiria. But then I don't understand why this was a vote between Madame Blanc and Mother Marcos. And I, I also don't understand what do what does Mother Superior have to do with anything? Is that is that this like black figure that comes out of the curtains at the end and 
pops the head off of everybody who voted incorrectly. What is this? I, I like, <laughs> there's just sort of like a lot of the frustration I have. And if this ritual, if this ritual is just, we need, uh, we're running out of time. If it, they had framed it like we're running out of time, the coven is Madame Marcos is dying. We need a new leader. And so we need to find the, the right person to possess this spirit because the clock is ticking. That would make more, and then that's how, Suzy, that's how Susie comes into the plot. That would make more sense to me, but it's not treated as that. And so what does this ritual have to do with the Bader-Meinhof conflict? What does it have to do with the, the legacy of the concentration camp, of, of the Holocaust? Like, I don't really get that. Because I was sort of under the, and I think that like if if the script is written better, you could really posit that the, this blood ritual has to do with um, when male superiority oppresses, right? So so the Nazis were all men. So the secret coven of uh, female witches practice this matriarchal blood ritual to end the reign of Nazism, or. Here we are in in the maybe that's when when they did it last, and then here we are again, the height of the Cold War. Maybe they practice this ritual again to um, to create a, a united Germany, right, and to to dissolve the Cold War conflicts, something like that. But like the script is, it's just it's so frustrating because you could align these things so much more clearly, and it would be so much more satisfying. But they just they just um, obscure the plot of this movie with a lot of crap, and and everyone the witches all the scenes with the like adult witches everyone's like it's it's dialogue is and everyone is talking around the topic within that ever actually talking directly at it to keep things mysterious and obscure and I just think that 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 all just it does this film a disservice because there's you know there's a lot of good that I feel it's trying to do that's very different than anything else that I have seen. Um, and it just can completely keeps pulling itself back from delivering a clear, coherent idea and message. So I guess that's why that's like my tirade. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. And I, I guess for me, I, I see what is going on with the coven as something to parallel and mirror what's happening politically and I think I mean this is kind of a cynical view but I wonder if the film is suggesting there is no or no matter what kind of community or institution you find yourself in systems of power will always emerge and those systems will become oppressive and authoritative like if the coven slash dance academy were formed as the Nazis were rising I'm guessing it was meant to be a positive alternative to Nazism, but then look what happened, or look look what became of it 30 years later, and even with the uh, voting between Marcos and Blanc, it could be that's just a a dummy election of of sorts, where they're going through the motions, but in the back of their minds, maybe the Marcos supporters know, you know, through brute force and witchcraft they're still the ones in power even though they're going through this election 
And so I feel like it's it's meant to show that even through the creation of separate institutions or spaces, oppression will always emerge with a new face, kind of. So I guess that's how I see that fitting in with what's going on politically. Um, I guess kind of in terms of the form, the form of the film, like are there any elements, whether it's, I think we talked about color a lot with the original, does like the color, music, or anything pop for you, Omar? Definitely the color. I don't want to say lacking, but just not as vibrant um, as the original. But I think in all the scenes, if I was to compare, you know, if we have a picture of all the leaders of this coven versus the original, you know, in the original, it's almost like it's setting you, you know, they're, they kind of speak in a way where you could see yourself being friends with them. They're like nice old ladies. Exactly. It's like uh-huh. you're having tea time with your grandma. Whereas this one is completely <laughs> contrast. I would definitely not want to be with any of these women together in a locked room. Who knows what they're going to do? Um, but I mean, that's not a bad difference to have. And especially if we're talking about, you know, we were talking about the quality of the, the film itself. You know, I think had we gone with those really vibrant colors, it would take away from the realism that this one's trying to establish in the contemporary world or, you know better image and we can kind of take to it more so. And I, I think that, I mean, I think it's a wise decision to shy away from the sort of phantasmagoria colors and visuals of the original because it really distincts itself, makes the, the remake distinctive where it's not, it's like we are forging a new path, we are not just trying to copy the original. So um, it's, you know, it visually resembles a lot like Possession where it's um, those dreary, uh, those dreary Berlin neighborhoods, um, and also like um, I, I kept getting images of Fassbender too. Like even though Fassbender oh, totally. shot um, around Munich, often it, it was still that post-war um, drabby neighborhoods. <laughs> lots of browns, lots of like earthy colors. I, I am I like that this film is embracing its ugliness. As a visual aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe ugly is the word I couldn't land on. When I watched <laughs> it, especially, this sounds this is really weird, but like, especially the hairstyles, this movie right. like screams the 70s to me, but not in a way that feel. I mean, yes, it's a period piece, or sort of, but it's not, it doesn't feel like it's on the nose. Like it, in certain shots, it just straight up looks like a movie from the 70s. Like mm. thinking of Fassbender, I even some of the ladies looked like the um, prostitutes or the evil ladies in Salo. Like yeah. it just looked, uh, the, I don't know, the hairstyle is just pitch perfect 70s to me. And yeah, maybe it's because it's kind of ugly. Criticism, <laughs> <laughs> but like the perfect word that came up to mind was like dull. Like that's what I get in a lot of these shots and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, I know that's the purpose that they're going for. Yep, I would um, say dull. Yep. <laughs> Um, something else to kind of we talked about uh, the how do you say it, Brad? Is it mise en scene? Mise en scene. Yep. Mise en scene. For the first one, um, but in the new one, an instance that stood out to me and um, Omar and I were actually just talking about it before recording, but the scene where Madame Blanc and Susie 
are like eating chicken off the bone talking with each other after her audition uh, i mean it's just a great scene period but it's shot so extremely where the camera's like almost at their like knee level pointed out yeah. so you're it's seeing the shadows of angle. their face yeah the shadows of their face are all extreme like they look like easter island statues or just they look massive um but it's a fun you know and of course throughout the course of the movie and the themes of power structures and all that it's kind of fun to rewatch because you you get the sense that they're almost sizing each other up against each other it's not a madame blanc appears taller than susie does which is what you would typically show to show like power imbalances they both are massive in the frame true I think in the scene in particular, it almost seems like at this point in the movie, though, they kind of have reached a balance where I don't know if I would have said that in the earlier scenes. So that scene in particular just made me chuckle because it's such a long, unnerving scene of their glances going back and forth. Um, no, it's great. Um, were there other elements that stood out to you, Brad? What do you think of the music? Um, I'm, I'm, I, I like the music. I'm not as, uh, critical about, um, I've heard a lot of people say whenever Tom York sings, that is distracting. Um, I didn't, like, even watching it again, uh, recently, I didn't really mind. Um, especially when he sings during the climax, people, that bothered a lot of people, but I didn't really mind that too much. Um, because it was kind of part, especially since it's the, the, is the end stretch of the climax that he actually sings. So it's not really at its sort of height. Um, and it just sort of creates, it just helps more with the sort of, uh, the, uh, the, the fantasy kind of feeling as, as the bloody climax kind of winds itself down. Um, but yeah, I know I liked, I liked Tom York's involvement in it. Um, something I thought that was interesting comparing it to the original is how, you know, of course, Tom York comes from Radiohead, um, but several of these songs had, you know, full lyrics compared to the original where I think they would just say like, which every once in a while, yeah. <laughs> um, in, in particular in the climax scene that you're talking about, the chorus is something like come under my wings, which is interesting, you know, going back to the idea of like a power regime change, if Susie's in charge now, she's picking and choosing who lives and dies. Um, and so, like, the lyrics are sort of, are both chilling, but also kind of sweet if you read Susie as their savior. Or sinister if you don't. Um, but I thought it was kind of another nugget to, I, I stumbled upon this time. And it's funny, because if you were to take that song out of the context of the movie you would almost think you know what a charming you know pleasant song and then of course you have you know the spirit of the death going around murdering everyone everyone's exploding into bloodbath so it's, it's a very good the contrast of what's happening um kind of another recurring thing and i haven't fully baked this so sort of want to talk it out with you guys um this round, I noticed hands kept coming up, and I was trying to sort of piece together what is the common 
theme around hands as like a symbol or an image. Um, I think maybe the most, or one of the more kind of thought provoking um, things about hands is um, when Madame Blanc is trying to, is training Susie on how to jump better. She's straight asking her, you know, what do you want to be for this company? Do you want to be the head, the heart? And Susie insists, I want to be the hands. Um, and thinking of other instances of hands throughout the film, um, this might have been a dream sequence, so it could be this didn't happen 100%, but Susie's hands are like burned with an iron as a child, is what the imagery seems to indicate. Miss um, Vendegast, one of the matrons, kind of puts her hands in a like Elsa let it go pose to open up like the mirror room to exit out um, as they're dragging out Olga's body. <laughs> but just kind of like the sense of hands in motion seems to take place a lot. So I was wondering if that was a, a pattern you guys noticed or had any thoughts around what the, those connections might be. I only know, like, I, I know the scene where she says, what do you want to be in this company? And she wants to be the hands. Um, but I, 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 it's interesting that her hands were, bur- were burned with an iron. I didn't put the two of those things together uh, before. But, uh, but no, that's, a, that's an interesting connection. Yeah, I don't think I realized that either. Especially the first time seeing that movie. You know, you kind of already think, oh, she's going to want to be the heart of it. She wants to be the brain. Yeah. It. It's like there's so many other things that, you know, people would probably gravitate to, but the fact that she says the hands, you know, what does that mean? I guess one thing I thought of, and kind of going back to the idea of a new regime change, um, but maybe thinking of hands as like a symbol of work or empowerment, um, kind of literally taking your own hand in your fate and building a new future or new like opportunity for yourself. I don't know if that's stringing things together, but hands are even on like the soundtrack cover. So just kind of from a thematic imagery perspective, um, they must be trying to tell us something with these hands. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that your mileage varies with how much you, uh, how much you want to dig into that. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, <laughs> that's a bit too crass. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and I guess just kind of another thing, and this is more like plot mechanics. Um, <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> everyone's going to have a different idea. <laughs> uh, this should be its own episode. So what, I guess two two parts. Susie, colon, what do you think about her? <laughs> And do you think she was always meant to be Mother Suspiriora? Uh, Omar, why don't you start? I definitely think she was. And let me kind of explain my two train of thoughts with this. In the movie itself, you know, when she gets uh, invited to join, you know, everything progresses, as we know, super quickly. But even when, you know, there's signs coming out that, you know, something's going on. And is it Sarah that's, like, warning her? you know, hey, I think you're in trouble, or, you know, there's more than this than you know. She keeps saying, nothing's wrong, everything's fine. Part of me wants to think that, you know, she just was given this big break. She wants to make it work, and obviously, uh, you know, she's going to put it on, um, regardless of these signs, to make her career advance. 
But at the same time, and this is a difference that I saw from this movie to the first one, all the the coven, um, all the leaders, they're all talking about it, are talking about, you know, the rituals and kind of the late, the girls so openly, where it's, you're kind of really ignoring all these signs that there is something else brewing underneath it all. So in that aspect, I almost do think that she kind of has always been Mother Suspirium. It's like, I think she... Uh, already had that predisposition and just being in the actual household now it really brought that out of her um brad what is your take um i mean i think that the film is like strongly suggesting that she's always had this inside of her especially like uh with her extremely religious mennonite upbringing and like uh, especially near the end of the film when it flashbacks to her mother and she says that Susie has been her greatest sin or whatever. The the idea that Susie's always, there's always been something sort of lurking that's been evil in the heart of Susie, uh, I think is there. I mean, the plot thing is like, as far as I know, Susie just went to Berlin because she was a big fan of Madame Bloch and wanted to be a dancer, and that was a rebel against her extreme religious upbringing. So how much Susie knew that it was a front for a coven of witches and that there's this whole Three Mothers thing, um, I don't know. Uh, I'll leave that as a plot hole. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's hard to... I think... I definitely get the sense that there's something in her, whether she realizes the extent of it or not. You know, when you right. see the scene of her as a child drawing on a map from Ohio to Berlin, I guess, you know, a lot of that, a lot of us didn't do that as a kid. <laughs> something was in her pulling her sure. to Germany. Um, but the, I mean, I think there's kind of a, uh, there's a big gap in this film about two thirds of the way through where it stops being about Susie. And you have the feeling that Susie's, like kind of aware that something sinister is going on. But then after that hand scene with the jumping that you mentioned, the like the main character becomes Sarah and Sarah's um, connection with the psychologist. And that's the only part of the story that you really get a plot as to what's happening. Because Sarah's the one who's digging, who goes to the like lower chambers. Sarah's the one who talks to the professor about Patricia, and and the professor has been reading Patricia's journal and everything inside the journal about the three mothers and sort of backstory and all of that. Um, and then when it comes back to Susie, the the only like what we get like there's one scene where she Sarah approaches Susie and Susie's like I don't know what you're talking about Madame Blanc's just nice and then after that there's a whole scene where Madame Blanc and Susie are talking and they're all talking telepathically and we're like wait we've gone full till witch now like that's kind of part of the issue that I have is that I think it would have been stronger if we actually saw how Susie became aware that there is something supernatural going on here and evil here. And instead, all that is kept hidden from us. And I don't really understand why. I guess, wouldn't that be a takeaway then that she was always evil in the first place? Or I think like none of us are in the boat that is saying she came to this not knowing she was evil or not knowing that there was something. It's just if she... 
if she was always evil and always thought she was evil, if she always thought she was a witch, like, did she know that this was a friend for the Coven of Witches all along? And and if she did, how did she know that? Maybe she, it could be she, like, felt it as a child or a young adult when she saw the dance company perform Again, previously. I would go back to, like, then this is something that should have been in there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, going kind of to your point around um, the plot sort of pivots from Susie as the main character sort of to Sarah for an act or so. I guess I I found that kind of exciting because it differed or that was one of the bigger markers in when this in how the film started to shift from the 1977 version, because I even though Sarah in the 77 one is, you know, also paranoid in but doing an investigation of her own but Susie is clearly the one we're supposed to kind of rally behind whereas in this one you know Susie is off and we get little cues of that throughout the film um but I think that's part of what makes it fun is if you're going in familiar with the original you're suddenly thrown off and kind of made uncomfortable or kind of sort of unable to grapple with like wait, what is actually happening? Maybe Susie's not good after all. Because to be honest, when the first time I watched it, I don't... I guess I figured she was spacey or a little funny, but I don't think I thought she was a witch until you're talking about that the climax se- hits. You're talking about the 77 version or the remake? Oh, sorry. Now, now I'm back on the remake. Okay. I mean, I, I think that part of the issue also is that um, in the 77 version, Sarah is treated as, like, a mentor character that dies, as the mentor characters are wont to do <coughs> in a screenplay. And Sarah's death is is what triggers Susie to um, finally take action and solve the mystery. Um, in the remake, uh, Sarah's, I mean, abduction, not really death, um, doesn't have an effect on Susie. And, in fact... She's just sort of taken off the, as a as a plot. She's just removed as a plot device that further established what the hell was going on here. And Susie's behavior is independent of whether Sarah even existed or not. She's just more influenced by this behind-the-scenes stuff with Madame Block that we were not privy to. And I think that that's kind of part, you know, that's part of the flaws, at least, I, I see. Not to keep sort of chipping away at this, I'm so sorry, but um, that kind of uh, coherent logic in how a story should be told um, doesn't, it's not clean. Uh, whereas in the original, for all of its um, plot weaknesses and, uh, you know, logical nonsense, <laughs> um, at least that makes sense. Susie dies, uh, sorry, Sarah dies to give Susie, um, the, she's now all alone. She has no friends. She must resolve this herself. That's a, that's a very typical standard plot device. Uh, a plot, a pattern, sorry, not device. Well, I guess in this one, and this is sort of jumping into the next bullet I want to unpack, but I guess with the 2018 one, if Madame Blanc is more the mentor figure, her death, I think, is what directly precedes Susie kind of declaring, no, I am Mother Suspiriorum. 
so is Madame. The men, I think that mentor figure and the current one is shifted to Madame Blanc. So that is the death. That's the catalyst for Susie's ultimate, like kind of transformation or at least declaration of who she is. Um, I, I think I agree where maybe Sarah's more of plot mechanics and kind of explaining at the exposition. But I guess for me, it works because it subvert, I think it could subvert expectations for fans of the 77 one where you kind of think there'll be this cause and effect between Sarah's death and Susie. And then when it doesn't, it's kind of jolting like, Oh wait, maybe Susie wasn't as good of a friend to Sarah after all, or it kind of discombob or discombobulated me. Certainly. I mean, I would, I would say that tracks better if Susie had a hand in Sarah's demise but in the end their relationship is left kind of muddled where Sarah kind of disappears um, below the basement and then breaks her leg it comes up for that the end of that dance and then is is sort of hauled away again and Susie and Sarah's relationship doesn't finish until the end of the ritual when she asks um, when she when Susie asks Sarah what she wants to do and she wants to die so I just I don't really understand. Um, what I'm supposed to take away from their relationship. If, if there's one thing, if you, if you want to suggest that you can in a plot suggest that, that your main character in a horror, in, you know, horror film is doing all this to, you know, become the antichrist or whatever, right. The, the grand evil to subvert your expectation that, that they, he or she was a good person all along. That's, that's a very typical device you can use and it's, and it's effective, but um, to do that, you have to make these relationships with the their mentor characters, uh, like Suze, like Sarah, like Madame Blanc, much more clear. And I, I don't think they do that here. It, it, even 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 the scene where Madame Blanc dies is so confusing to me. All of a sudden, she's saying something's not right. Can you feel it? I'm like, what's not right? What are you talking about? Susie's already there. She's already come to to the uh the ritual just waiting for her turn to sort of say like oh i am mother suspiria all along and 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 mother marcos is a fraud and i'm like okay and i'm like who's mother marcos we just meeting her now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so i don't know there you go (laughs) do you feel like the change in the story itself was more so just to make a difference between the first and the second but not enough for it explained all the differences. Um, yes. And I mean, I guess yes and no. Like, I'm not, because I can't say that the first, I could never say that the original answers all these questions clearly. It, I mean, it, because the original um, doesn't care about them and we don't care about them because it's so simple, right? Like, I mean, there are these huge plot holes as to why they're keeping Susie around if they're all they're just doing is being annoyed by her. Like, like what? What is? And, and I, you could say that that's that's a flaw in that plot that that the remake kind of answers. Oh, the reason why they invited her or whatever is because she's you know they've had a sense that she has this potential. They're constantly referencing that that like her dancing is just causing them all these supernatural shivers right she must be the one so okay that explains it that explains it better but um the the problem the sequel has is that uh 
it's adding so much plot, but it's it's all uh, a, a, a puzzle piece that's not solved. It's just a bunch of stuff that it hasn't even really clearly streamlined to make sense. Whereas the original is a is a little stuff, but it it just gets sort of the bare bones of what you need to tell a story um, there, and that's it, you know. And 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 what it has instead is this, you know, orgasmic audio and visual sense sense experience that elevates it beyond its stilted acting and beyond its plot holes. Whereas the the sequel just it has great acting, it has, you know, the length. It's just so it's so much script and it's not all aligned, not all positioned properly, and it's trying to sew itself way too much into 1977 Berlin. So uh, I don't know. That's, I guess that's, yeah. And this one, the lack of Sarah, that character itself, I, I don't think it's a problem for me because you kind of get the sense, or I, I get the sense that, of course, you know, they're focusing so much more on Madame Blanc and kind of talking about that scene where they're having the dinner and, you know, at that point in the movie, it's like they're both equals. You know, they've kind of forged that partnership early on so Sarah's kind of like put on the back burner she's not as important to to what's going on later on in the ritual and of course you know she does give her that mercy of granting her death as she wishes at the very end but Uh, like don't you think it would be stronger if like Susie was the one who figured out all the answers and then decided to be evil anyways that's uh, that's what I just what I I think like if Susie had yeah like if Susie was the one that had the relationship with the psychologist and like i mean it's kind of like it's kind of like the plot of the original one only Susie joins the witches in, in instead of uh instead of destroying <laughs> them all right like that's kind of where i like can it not just be stronger that way like i don't know i don't know i would rewrite this <laughs> I don't <know>. whatever <laughs> and i hope this is not a bad question to ask but i wonder you know when this movie was in production was uh, Tilda Swinton, was she cast already, you know, as the story was going along? And was her kind of character and plot development changed because of who she was? I mean, she has three different roles in this movie. Does that reflect the three mothers? Oh, I never thought of that. I'm sure that was probably what they thought of, but I don't really care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I, you know... I think the I remember seeing set photos with her uh, as the old man, so that was kind of like a reveal much earlier on than they probably wanted. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of grand idea about casting the only male, like major male figure in this film, um, and have an, a, a female actress play him. Um, I'm sure that's all part and parcel of the film's themes about, uh, you know, destroying the patriarchy and all of that, but it's just, it's muddled. It's just because it just becomes, I mean, I don't, I don't hate that plot. I don't hate that element as much as a lot of people does. Um, but I, I, I can't really defend it too much either. Like, why didn't they just cast someone who is a man <laughs> so that you're not constantly reminded that you're watching uh, uh, Tilda Swinton in old man makeup? <laughs> Well, maybe it's another layer of the theme of motherhood, where in a way he, that character 
is a sort of kind of mentor slash confidant of Sarah. Yeah. Though, I mean, could that character have been a female psychologist rather than a male? I guess I don't know enough about German culture to know if that even would have made sense in that era. Um, uh, but uh, even like, why does it have to be Sarah? Like, why couldn't it have just been Susan? I don't, I mean, uh, Susie, yeah. They were just, I don't know, just to streamline the plot. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, and I guess part of why I'm, it works for me with Sarah is sort of in a in, in parallel path with the motherhood stuff. I think the idea of like resurrection where it's, Monon Blanc said something like, when you, let me get the quote right. When you dance the dance of another, you embody the spirit of its creator. Um, and explicitly, I think she's talking about Volk and Susie performing the dance that Madame Blanc created. Um, but I think just the idea of resurrection plays a lot of, or comes into play quite a bit. I know we've talked about like the politics and the regime stuff a lot, but even almost as a one-to-one of individuals, you know, if you think of almost who is the who is the paranoid slash suspicious dancer of the company, first you have Patricia, then it's Olga, then it's Sarah. It's like there's always someone to play that role. And then in terms of who's in charge of who's running the show of the company, I guess presumably it used to be Marcos, then it's Madame Blanc, and then maybe we're led to believe that that's Susie. Like, almost if they're different timelines of what are these roles and then who is who is dying and who's being resurrected to fill those roles is something I was kind of thinking about. Okay, is there anything else you want to talk about with the 2018 one before we uh, take us home? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know, I've griped enough. Um, <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. I, uh, there's sequences in it that I really do uh, visually appreciate and what they were trying, what they were attempting to do. And I, I you know, I'm a big fan of movies like Mother and uh, I'm trying to remember and Possession. And um, I, I would like, I'd like to see more movies take the chances that this film does. Um, absolutely. Omar, what do you think is your big, like, takeaway um, or kind of thoughts after seeing this? I think in general, this movie being that much longer wasn't... It, it didn't take away from the story. And in a way, I'm glad that it was, you know, resurrected, so to speak, for a new audience. Um, yeah, there was a couple of things here and there that I think could have been a little outlined more. Um, in particular, my, as far as my personal movie interests, I, I hate having huge open ends. Um, it's funny you mentioned Mother Brat, because I feel like that movie just uh, was my blood a little bit. <laughs> uh, but that's for another conversation. But, but in this one, I think the, those loose ends to me didn't, you know, make me they detract from the story too much. And I think... You know, it's very, it's not very common that I like the sequel just as much as I like the original. Um, and I think this one did that for me. 
Um, I think I'm a similar boat. Like, I'll, obviously, I like both of these, where I wouldn't want to make an episode about them. <laughs> but for me, the 2018 Suspiria is almost like my textbook definition of what I would, would want to see in a remake of a classic movie and how it... So everything about it feels so different. I love how it, or for me, it really subverts your expectations. Just visually, they're total opposites. There's zero color in this one compared to the 77 one. But I like that because then you're getting something so different um, that's not trying to recreate the feelings you get from the original. Um, and even all like the political cultural stuff that's going on you know even if i don't understand it 100 percent of the time you know like you said brad like it's it's kind of taking risks and going in different directions um right and i admire it for that and i guess for, for me like a lot of times like origin stories or those kinds of movies where they try to explain everything a lot of times don't, those don't work for me but this one did like you know and it, it might just be a matter of personal preference for me everything just clicked together really smoothly obviously not everyone has that experience but it just it just felt like the full package of everything coming together um kind of based on usually at the end of each episode we'll do a recommendation based on the movie but since we have two movies um brad i don't know if you would recommend one movie off kind of based on the 77 or not based on in line with the 77 one and then one in line with the 2018 one that you would recommend um sure i mean i think i i've i've name dropped them um the 1977 version um if you're a fan of dario argento uh if you're a fan of his his version of suspiria which you should be if you're any any <laughs> sane human being i would totally recommend um deep red which he made, I think, a few years before with um, David uh, Hemmings from uh, Antonioni's Blow Up. And it's a stylish um, a stylish Italian giallo, um, which he does a lot of wild, crazy things that you can see um, is sort of like the lead up to something like Suspiria. Um, but it's it's visually beautiful. It's it, it does he does the same great things with sound, and uh, there's some great twists in it, and it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, for the remake, um, I would mention um, Andre Zulewski's Possession, which I feel is uh, is the same sort of visual um, and storytelling. Uh, elements that uh, Guadagnino is is at play here. Um, but I kind of think in a much more, um, much more satisfying way, uh, he, his, his, uh, yeah, his camera is crazy. All his characters sort of speak in this like heightened operatic, like elevated dialogue. It's kind of, it's really nuts, but, um, he keeps things in a, um, nicely, uh, ambiguous way, the way we often say David Lynch does. Um, so it makes um, it makes it when it when it all is said and done. I think I think it's a much more satisfying movie. Um, so yeah, there's mine. Thank you. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of those before this episode, uh, but I'm excited to check those out now. Definitely do. Um, 
for me, this might not be the most obvious one, but the for the original Suspiria, I think I would recommend Personal Shopper, which actually visually has a lot in common with the 2018 one, I think, in the drabness. But the one of the elements of the 77 Suspiria that I think hits much stronger than in the 2018 one, not that the 2018 one is trying to do this, um, but kind of the feeling of being a foreigner in a different country. I think especially in the first act or so, everything Susie goes through from struggling to speak with the taxi cab driver to how kind of weird the other girls are, where they're like trying to sell her shoes and she's like, no, I'm good for the money. Olga's kind of weird, or everybody's weird to her. Um, And it reminded me of Personal Shopper, which is a story where Kristen Stewart's character is in Paris, um, kind of waiting for a sign from her deceased brother. This isn't a spoiler because it's all in the back of the box. But, you know, as an American in Paris, a lot of it, you know, when she's there for one reason and one reason only, she doesn't really seem to have friends or any, a lot tying her to that place. So a lot of it feels like she's an outsider and a loner. And it's this kind of odd divide of being in one of the most beautiful cities in the world and someone's there and they're alone and they're miserable. Um, it was just kind of the, the themes of that. I thought sort of echoed Suspiria um, in that regard. Um, and then for the contemporary one. Gosh, I thought I had a recommendation. Now I don't remember it. I might have to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Omar, what, what, would, what do you think you would recommend? Yeah, I'm like trying to think of something for the contemporary one, but I'm like, not really getting something comparable to it but definitely for the original i get a lot of vibes and this is a lot more you know not necessarily story but color scheme um the house film 1977 horror film japanese horror movie but a lot of the colors that are just vibrant and of course you know the story and the images of that are just so whimsical where i feel like i kind of do get that same sense that i would get in the original um for this one as well when that's another one where I would guess the plot and the logic doesn't matter so much. Right. <laughs> but it's a blast to watch. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, maybe that's a good thing if we can't, or there's there's nothing like the 2018 one, to us at least. Hmm. Brad, I know you have a recca. <laughs> in, in a way, I think I had mentioned this to you before, Stephen. The thing that I like about this new one so much is that you know, new horror movies nowadays. I mean, I'm talking more, of course, more mainstream movies. A lot of the deaths or a lot of the, you know, the scenes, the spoilers or, you know, the jump scares, they're just that. They're jump scares. They're so systematic. And I think the first um, death scene or one of the first ones here, what we see in the second movie where, um, you know, she's auditioning and then we have the brutal massacre going downstairs. That was such an impacting scene where, you know, I really hadn't seen that in another movie and maybe it's kind of something similar to why i can't think of something comparable it was just such a huge wow this is original it's not something that is being copied it's not someone jumping out of the shadows all of a sudden that's true yeah i mean that's part of what i feel that guaranino is sort of adding to that carving new ideas of what modern you know the elevated horror thing that we're in right now right 
Absolutely. It's a it's a great time to be an art horror film. <laughs> yeah. Art horror fan. Um Well Brad and Omar, thank you guys again. This has been a really fun discussion. Um it makes me just excited to watch the movies again. Um Brad, um, since this is your first time as a guest, um, where can people find or follow you on social media or um letterboxd and all that? Um, you can find me on Letterboxd. I'm uh Mr. Brad at Mr. Brad McD on Letterbox, and you can find all of my reviews there. Um, I try to do most of what I see, not necessarily everything I see, but um, when when the spirit moves me, I uh, tend to write reviews. So yeah, um, and you can find me on the Criterion Now Facebook group. Um, I belong on there as well. I don't really do Twitter. I can't stand Twitter, so that's probably it. <laughs> Um, well, thank you guys again. Um, this has been a, t- a really fun discussion. And yeah, until next time, ciao, Amici. <laughs> thank ciao, you so much. Amici. Ciao.